Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. That I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. So the summer after my senior year, my parents got into their heads that apparently I should have a job. And I had never really had a real job before. Certainly had no vision for myself, you know, of what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I just started walking from my house in Alexandria, Virginia toward Old Town. And when I got there, the sort of very, very beginning of Old Town, there was a, a coffee shop on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street was the Alexandria Gazette, which was the local paper. And the coffee shop had a help wanted sign. And there is this moment, right, where I could have turned left and gone into the coffee shop and gotten, you know, a minimum wage job. Instead, I was like, yeah, let me go check out the Gazette. And my, my memory is that I just walked in and basically said, do you hire people here? And they must have looked at me and thought, I don't know, maybe I was just a warm body. But uh, I ended up being an intern for the Alexandria Gazette. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And it was pure, stupid coincidence because it was kind of hot out and I just wanted to get a job as quickly as possible. I'm Alan Brooks, and this is my podcast, Breadcrumbs. I talk to professionals and creatives from all over the world about the most pivotal moments in their lives. So let's go break some bread. Our guest today is Catherine Mangue Ward. Catherine is a great many things. She's a dear friend. I've known her for almost 30 years. She was my drum major. She is a mom to two awesome kids. She is also the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine. That's a big deal. She's the editor of this multinational nonprofit magazine that's been around for a very long time. And of all of our guests here on Breadcrumbs, Catherine's journey is one of the most A to B to C to D. You'll hear all these people whose stories go in these circuitous routes that don't always make as much sense in real time. But then when you look back, there's clarity to it. With Catherine, she walked into a newspaper, asked for a job, and... You'll hear the rest in a few minutes. She is funny, self-deprecating, clever, smart. I can't say enough good things about her. I hope you enjoy listening to her. I know I did. If you want to hear more about what she does, you can find her all over the internet. She just did a TED Talk, which as I understand it is a big deal, as they say. So take a listen to Catherine Mayhew Ward. Let us know what you think. Can't wait to hear from you. If you've got an awesome story that you want to tell us about, please reach out to us on social and enjoy my conversation with Catherine Maggie Ward. 
So the summer after my senior year, my parents got into their heads that apparently I should have a job. And I had never really had a real job before. I think it was about trying to teach me what that was like to be a grown-up and have a job in the world. I had no idea how to go about it. And I certainly had no vision for myself, you know, of what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I just started walking from my house in Alexandria, Virginia toward Old Town on the vague idea that like, that's where people did stuff for money. And when I got there, the sort of very, very beginning of Old Town, there was a, a coffee shop on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street was the Alexandria Gazette, which was the local paper, which came to my door every day or every, every week. And the coffee shop had a help wanted sign. And there is this moment, right? There's this sort of pivotal moment where I could have turned left and gone into the coffee shop and gotten, you know, a minimum wage job and probably like would now be able to make myself a better espresso. But instead I was like, yeah, let me go check out the Gazette. And my, my memory is that I just walked in and basically said, do you hire people here? And they must have looked at me and thought, I don't know, maybe I was just a warm body, but I ended up being an intern for the Alexandria Gazette. I worked minimal hours, minimally competently, typing in the police blotter and the marriage announcements and the neighborhood newsletters. I didn't get paid for my hours. I did get paid for what writing I did, which ended up being like reportage on the new gazebo. And also, weirdly, I once interviewed Janet Reno. I absolutely remember being called into the editor-in-chief's office to be given assignments or I suppose to be mentored. And I think the thing that I, that was my most common early career mistake is that I didn't understand the context of what I was supposed to be doing and didn't make a lot of effort to understand. And thinking back on that, it does make me more forgiving of younger journalists that are just starting out. Because it, it's hard to understand both your subject matter, whatever it is you're writing about or reporting on, and your employer, like the broader context of like, what is the mission of the organization that you're a part of? And what are they for? And how do they think about themselves? And I, I didn't have access to that. And it turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And it was pure, stupid coincidence because it was kind of hot out and I just wanted to get a job as quickly as possible. So at 17 years old, your parents were like, get out of our house, go find your purpose in life. Or was it more like, go do something this summer because we don't want you to be in the house? Definitely the latter. This was not a vision quest. Like I wasn't like given some ayahuasca and sent into old town Alexandria to find my true self some kind of parental moment where they were like, you know, probably you should know what work is like, which I actually think as a parent now, probably kids should know what work is like. And that's harder now than it used to be for a bunch of reasons. But it was for sure, like, we don't care what you do. We care that you do the actions of getting a job and having a job and doing work roughly on a daily basis for a couple of months before we send you to Schmancy College. Well, and so this was like the absolute very first semblance of a job, right? I would say yes and no. I definitely didn't understand at all what I was seeing. I think that's the thing about being 17 and having your first job is that you have no standard of comparison. So I rolled in there and it was it was the thing you're envisioning in that it was 
you know, it was an Alexandria row house and it was just like piled with stuff. Like it was, a, it had a very kind of like all the writers and the ad salespeople and the editors were all kind of stacked on top of each other with like newspaper archives piled up around their desks. So it was very atmospheric in that way. The computers that we used were these hilarious, you know, black monitor, green type, clickety clackety keyboards. So it, it had this sort of theatrical newsroom vibe, I would say. You know, my job was something like 10 to 2. Like, I I absolutely did not, like, have a kind of clock-in, clock-out type experience. But my previous encounters with the Alexandria Gazette had always just been kind of, it showed up on my doorstep. It was like a thing that existed that I had never thought about. And so the experience of seeing a thing made, uh, in particular, seeing a publication made, was really formative for me because... That's what I do every day now. Did you have a sense at that point that this was your home? Absolutely not. And still to this day, you know, there are lots of people I work with who really think of themselves as writers. That's who they are as a person or journalists or reporters, which are all slightly different, you know, shades of gray there. But no, I did not have any of the like, I'm coming home. I did think this seems fun. This seems like a, like a cool thing to do that apparently some people get paid for. And so I think I had that in the back of my mind. But truly, even though my entire resume, such as it was when I graduated college, was only journalism, with the exception of one summer where I was an accountant, that still hadn't gelled for me until I got offered a fellowship after my senior year of college as a journalist, like I was literally thinking about my job search and being like, I think I want to be a person that makes things like I'm going to get into like manufacturing. Like I truly was so, uh, it was an interesting case. I think of someone having revealed preferences, right? Like there's this economics concept that you, there's the things people say they like, and then there's the things that they show they like through their buying decisions or, life choices. And I had so clearly shown that what I liked to do and was good at was journalism. And I did not, I was utterly unself-aware about that. Certainly at age 17, not at all. You had to convince yourself that that was the right thing. Like someone was like, I think you might be into journalism. And I was like, you're right. I think you might be onto something actually. And it was after I had worked at the Alexandria Gazette a paper in college for three out of my four years, U.S. News and World Report, <laughs> Reason Magazine. <laughs> I was being offered a job at the Weekly Standard Magazine, and I was like, oh, oh, I see. I see what's going on here. So you couldn't escape the siren song of journalism, and then you get to, you've seemingly purposefully not mentioned your university. Is that on? Oh God, it's so terrible. Like, it, it, I went to Yale. But then you don't want to be the jerk face that says, I went to college in New Haven. You know, like, oh, my God, so punchable. But on the other hand. Oh, it's, it's, I haven't heard of have it. How do you spell that? Is it small liberal arts college or like what is the. So, so you get to Yale and you start working at the college newspaper right away or is. I did not actually work at the Yale Daily News, which is the storied oldest college newspaper in the country or something, you know, very schmancy. I worked at the scrappy alternative paper, which was called the Yale Free Press. And it was kind of just a joke. Like the way that we did this paper was that once a month or so, 
we would just like get a lot of beer and then everyone would sit together in someone's dorm room and write all the stories and then we would illustrate it with black and white photos from like old time magazines. So it was not a thing that we did. It was tabloid style. You know, it looked like the New York Post. It was not a thing that we took super seriously, but it's actually incredible how much of what I learned is still relevant to my day-to-day life, including like you just have to get the thing printed. Like there's just all these like things you have to do to turn digital things into physical things that are easy to underestimate and that even as an idiot college student on a tiny budget, you have to get done. And it resulted in stuff like a frantic road trip to the actual printer holding our printed out galleys because at the time the like sharing of digital files was still a little less reliable. Like 2000 or 2001, right? Like you couldn't, you know, box didn't exist. Yeah. So uh, we did have, I don't know if you remember zip drives, like the physical. Yeah. yeah. That was the thing that was big enough to hold a copy of the magazine of the newspaper, which we had produced on cork in order to, but we, we had to physically take the drive to the printer. I also made a lot of mistakes and it's really good to make your mistakes on your dumb college paper when the stakes are very low, especially in college before everything is online. Oh, when Oh yeah. It's also fairly ephemeral. Are there archives of your college writing? There are some, but not many. The archives of the Yale Free Press are not fully digitized, perhaps for the best for everyone. You know, I sometimes joke that my current job, I don't have, you know, the phrase golden handcuffs, like when you're paid so much, you can't leave a job. So journalism, broadly speaking, does not have golden handcuffs. It's not an extremely well compensated profession, but I have like ideological golden handcuffs, like almost everything that we run in reason, I believe to be true or believe is an important thing for someone to say, even if I don't 100% agree with it. And we have, you know, internally a, a culture of dissent and a culture of not shying away from controversial concepts, which makes it easier to align hiring decisions and how we think about like staff social media presence with that idea. Like it's okay to say stuff that sometimes makes people really angry is a thing we believe. And so unlike, you know, the New York Times, where I also worked, where the the social media policy is unenforceable, constantly in flux, a total disaster for them, because they both want people to sort of not have a personality. They should just be a byline under, you know, under an objective headline. And also, it's a star system where they want to build fame. And that's that's never going to work. And it's a disaster all the time for them. And I think you know, this is one thing that's great about growing up inside an organization is, you know, it's hard for me to know where my values start and reasons values end. Reason is, was founded in 1968. So it long pre-exists me, but, you know, so much of what we do is a product of what I want us to do at this point and has been for a long time. And so when I'm looking at the bad tweet by the 15-year-old, I can do that with this like very, very broad context about what it really means for the institution. Let's talk about Reason then, since you segued us so perfectly into that. You know, so Reason Magazine, for people listening who aren't as familiar with its tradition and and its kind of philosophical background, is traditionally known as the, and correct me when I speak completely incorrectly here, but it is known as like the libertarian magazine. 
like top of the heap. So first off, let's do some defining. So can you talk a little about reason and then talk a little bit about what libertarianism is? Because I think that people kind of have broad ideas of it as this kind of like other political philosophy floating around in America. And people are like, it's Ron Swanson. And then they're done. I mean, I'm perfectly happy for people to more or less just say it's Ron Swanson. Like they <laughs> more or less gotten it. Like that gets you, that's a, like a good 80% of the way there. Awesome. Now, Reason Magazine was founded, as I said, in 1968. And it, uh, our motto is free minds and free markets. And that captures, I think, the thing that makes libertarianism distinctive in American politics. We are, you know, we broadly think that people should be left alone to do what they want to do. And that means both freedom of conscience. So, you know, there should be, people should have a wide array of religious and moral views, and those should all be tolerated by the state. They should be able to say what they believe, that free speech is like a very, very core idea uh, for almost all libertarians, that the power of state actors should be limited. And this summer has been a big summer for like, hey, maybe the cops have too much power. Like, hey, maybe the president has too much power. And that's something that we have been writing and thinking and talking about for a long time. And then you know, the free markets piece of it is that we think that people should have a high degree of economic liberty. So they should be allowed to start businesses. They should be allowed to invest how they want. They should be allowed to spend their money how they want. And that, of course, crosses over with stuff like they should be allowed to spend their money on drugs. They should be allowed to spend their money on sex. They should be allowed to spend their money on anything that doesn't harm someone else. And so that is, those are kind of some of the core ideas. I mean, the other way to say it is basically I want a gay married marijuana farmer to be able to defend his property with a gun. You know, most kids who even when they get politically kind of turned on at 13, 14, 15, kind of still only see the dichotomy of American politics. And that's kind of where they start aligning. So you get to college. And so is that where the love affair with libertarianism started? So actually, I started down this path when I was in high school. So I was 15 years old and I started reading Ayn Rand. And Ayn Rand is the author of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. How does one at 15 start just choosing to read Ayn Rand? So my mom actually gave me a copy of The Fountainhead to her eternal regret. I was raised by good government, DC liberals. They just wanted me to like vote democratic and, you know, be nice. And The Fountainhead is a novel about architecture. The main character is based on Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, who's a hero of my dad's, who was also an architect. And my mom gave me the book, I think having experienced it that way. A lot of people do. They read this book and they're like, this book is a really cool book about some heroic people who are pursuing art, right? But that's one way to interpret the book. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, this is my first exposure to really like economics, political philosophy, metaphysics, like, you know, uh, like my education had been very good, but not in any of these subjects. It's just like, that's not the Virginia core curriculum in the nineties. Right. And so it was just this very eye-opening experience for me. And I read everything that she wrote. She wrote a lot of nonfiction as well. So I read her collections of essays. I read her very bad play and just got really into it. And this is a thing. 
right? Less so now, but being a teen objectivist, which is the word for people who follow Ayn Rand's philosophy, just utterly insufferable because her characters, like one of her big things is the virtues of selfishness and egoism. And so she sort of says, if you're great at something, you shouldn't let other people drag you down, which again can be a sort of self-helpy nice takeaway or can be poisonous and pernicious. Anyway, I was sort of a jerk for a while, very into Ayn Rand. My high school friends were very tolerant of that side of me, but I always thought of myself as like a philosopher. Like I was not interested in politics particularly. To be fair, most of us are insufferable at some point in our mid-teens. I mean, I was going to be insufferable in some variant, and this is the variant. Ayn Rand's philosophy. Right. So I get to college, and I'm like thinking I might major in philosophy because I'm a philosopher because I read these books at 15, right? Obviously. And the first or second day of college, I roll into the freshman activities fair, the freshman bazaar. And union kind of like everyone puts up a, a, a booth and is like, come join our, you know, glee club and it, acapella group. You went to Yale. There were like 30 oh. of them. God, the acapella sitch, very serious. No, it's if you, if you remember the movie Pitch Perfect, you know, it's the scene at the, the beginning of Pitch Perfect, right? I roll into the activities fair and one of the first tables that I see is for the objectivist study group at Yale, which is like, yes, this is exactly what I was hoping to find here. And I like head on over, sign myself up on the list. I get an invitation a few days later for the first meeting and I go to this meeting and it turns out that the objectivist study group at Yale has no objectivists in it. It's actually a front group to recruit people like me, people who have gotten their brains turned on by this, by Ayn Rand, who really should read some other books. And so they kind of ease you in. And they're like, let's talk a little bit about Ayn Rand. And then they're like, but there are these other economists and philosophers and political theorists. And let's think and talk about those too. And one thing about Ayn Rand is that her official position was that she was the only best only philosopher. Got it. And, Good. Yeah, that sounds really fair and reasonable. Right. So uh, you have to break through that, right? Which is why they didn't just open with like, hey, maybe read other books. They opened with Ayn Rand is the best. And then like real quick, swapped in some Aristotle. And then like from oh, there, like middle. Yeah. It wasn't just the kind of libertarian leaning readings and stuff like that. It really no. was the... But then that group of people turned out to be part of the Yale Political Union debating society crew. And the, the particular party within the political union was the kind of libertarian and conservative group. So from there, I quickly kind of shifted to identifying as a libertarian. I ended up majoring in political science and philosophy and obviously being exposed to a much wider variety of thinkers. But absolutely, it was the exact same as if they had been on a dating app and they had put a picture of Ayn Rand and I was like, click, and then, no. Your saddle is actually the one you meet for dinner. I, I was catfished, yeah. Fun coda on that story is that I am sure by reconstructing events that I met my now husband that day as well at the Freshman Bazaar. But neither of us can remember meeting each other. Because he was a year older, he was like manning a few tables. We probably talked, but we didn't get to know each other until later in the Yale Political Union. Oh, so he wasn't part of the Objectivist Society. He was, but he, you know, he was a year older, so he had a very busy and important role. Yeah, I mean, big, big 
college, he was a sophomore. Or... Yeah. So he's really mature and cool. And so I don't think he was at those very early meetings. Like we just, it was like, not unlike my engagement with journalism. It was not love, love at first sight. It was, it was like a slow dawning, apparently, of the good fit. What do you mean slow dawning? So like, how long did you guys? I mean, we were friends for a couple of years and then we got together at the end of my sophomore year, which so, was 21 years ago. 21 years? That's a long run. Long run. And it's all because of your parents throwing. Well, so it's actually not. So so you and your, your husband would have met probably whether or not you were a journalist, right? Because it sounds like in another universe, there is a hyper-conservative and or hyper-liberal version of Catherine that is running the equivalent magazine for that political, you know, philosophy, had you not also found Ayn Rand. It's like Ayn Rand and local journalism found you at exactly the right moment and put, set you on kind of parallel tracks to make all of the things in your life kind of come together now. That's right. I think, I mean, in college, those things were very intertwined. And many of the opportunities that I had early on in journalism were because of my involvement with this political union group. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, when people talk about networking, I think you have this horrible vision of like a sweaty guy with like a business card being like, you should call me. But in fact, there was just this extremely intertwined, established world that I was primed for and then stepped into and just like fully embraced it and it embraced me, which was this kind of overlapping sphere of, you know, academic pursuits in the kind of political philosophy range and journalism, which was both kind of a hobby and then eventually became my internships and eventually my jobs. And my husband was involved in all of that with me because oh. all groups were over were overlapping. Was he working in the newspaper too? Yeah, he. I was the editor in chief of the college newspaper, and he was the publisher. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, you were probably like, I'm the editor in chief. I can't let them know that I'm dating the publisher. Hundred percent. It was like, like my the ethical demands of my <laughs> my hobby college newspaper or something. So after you had this opportunity to, well, rather, opportunity is the wrong word. After you were ricked into reading other books. Yeah, as, as you were rickrolled into reading Sartre and Aristotle and all this other stuff. So what drew you back to these kind of libertarian ideals and these objectivism ideals that you read at 15 and were like, I'm done? Because you just said, you know, you look back at 19-year-old Catherine, 40-year-old Catherine's pretty similar. As you were exposed to all this stuff, did that help color your personal philosophy or your professional philosophy? Or did it just kind of reinforce what you thought was the the Catherine of it all. So I will say there there's a big difference between what 15-year-old Catherine thought and what 40-year-old Catherine thinks. But that's a time for a lot of people, I think, to become who they are, those sort of late teenage and early college years. And for sure, even though I still think Ayn Rand had a lot that was valuable to say, reading all these other philosophers and, and branching out and just reading a lot of other sources, right? Like I just started reading political magazines and op-ed pages and um, listening to podcasts later on and all these things. And I think you can't really 
make an argument for any position until you really understand the opposite position. And people who believe that they can do that are almost always fooling themselves. And so, for instance, just to get a little bit in the weeds, there's a there's a tension in 20th century political philosophy between Nozick and Rawls, just two thinkers. Sure. And I'm team Nozick, uh, who is, I think is one of the greatest you know, recently living political philosophers. But I took a whole semester class on Rawls only because I was like, if this guy who has shaped most of modern American liberal political thinking is going to be my opponent forever, I need to steel man him, not straw man him, right? Like I need to understand who this dude is and what he thinks. And I think I took away some stuff from that class that I was like, actually, this tempers or informs my view. And so that's just one example. But I really think you can't read one book and have a plan for life. That's not the way to do it. I'm not an objectivist now, but actually Reason Magazine itself was founded by an objectivist and is no longer an objectivist magazine. So the story of the magazine is also my story once again. Well, that's uh, two follow-ups with that is, first off, it's good that the magazine can change with the people behind it because I'm in this push-pull of trying to understand now that we're running an organization you know, that organizations are in fact humans that are behind them. And so it's nice to see that reason wasn't so beholden to this kind of like etched into stone set of ideals set forth in 1968 and that it, it can evolve with the people who are then that make up reason. The more important question is, is Nozick still alive? And have you gotten a chance to be in the room with him to have a proper challenge? No, tragically, I, I missed the chance. He, he, I could have, if I had timed my 20s a little better, I could have met Nozick. And actually, one of my former colleagues not only met Nozick, but um, he attempted quite sincerely to seduce him, which I, I always felt was like a real missed opportunity for all of us. But no, and in fact, what you've just reminded me of is one of the saddest days of my young teenage life, which is when I went to the Alexandria Public School School Library and used the very early technology, which was the I looked up Ayn Rand in the Encarta on the computer and discovered that she was dead and my heart was broken and she was long dead, but she was so alive to me and so important to my young self that I, I think I just thought like, we're going to meet and be besties. And like, frankly, she was a bitch. Like she was a monster (laughs) personally. And so I, I suspect as many, many objectivists were, I would have been deeply disappointed had I met her. But at the moment, it felt like a real personal loss, which is, you know, which is like still with me today, I guess, since it just brought up all those feels. Well, I'm sorry that you never got to meet your monster idol. My monster idol. I mean, never, they say never meet your heroes. You've been like on this path. I mean, this path is uncommon to our generation, right? You should have had like six jobs by now, but you kind of haven't. You've been at Reason for how long? I interned at Reason in the summer of 2000. I finished college. I had a couple of other jobs. And then I came back to Reason in 2006. And I have been at Reason ever since. 17 years-ish, 15 years, something like that. You're in charge of Reason now, which I assume has happened with no problems along the way. I mean, like you said that in a sarcastic voice, but it has been very smooth. Like I have just had each job in quick succession moving up until getting the top job. And that's not a thing that happens anymore, I don't think. 
But you said it was smooth, but it can't be like you hadn't done any managerial work on that. And like, there's got to be a massive amount of human stuff that you now deal with because you're in charge of all the humans. And from a managerial perspective, when did you learn those lessons? Like, how did those things happen? Because you got into it to be a writer. And then I assume, you know, a couple of years later, you found yourself in charge of people, people with a lot of opinions. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, this is what this is. It's all lessons that I started learning at my college paper of you just have to do each thing wrong once and and then you learn how to do it right. And I will say this is what journalism is like as a general matter. Uh, if any of your listeners are considering going to journalism school, my advice to them is do not go. Journalism school is expensive and worthless. You could instead get a job doing journalism and get paid to learn how to do journalism much more efficiently. And that is what you should do. Most journalists do not have a huge amount of higher ed. And most journalists who become editors and managers learn on the fly. And there are some, you know, sort of little like executive camps you can do and stuff to be better at that, at that sort of thing. But, but honestly, for the most part, you just, you learn how to do it by watching others. And sometimes you say, I'm going to copy that. And sometimes you say, note to self when I'm in charge, I'm going to do the opposite of that thing. Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. That has been like our, our way of growing our company has been like those of us who are kind of in charge here often look back on the crappy jobs or the difficult bosses or the things and we're like, okay, so in that situation, what would, you know, I'm making up a name of a former boss that I didn't have. What would Steve done? Steve, you know who you are. And then I'll say, okay, great. Don't do what Steve would have done. And usually that works out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, this is how a lot of us do our parenting as well, right? Like you, you see a parent, whether your own or just parents around you in the culture, and you're like, oh, don't do that. That's not that thing. Don't do that one. I will say that, parents. you know, one of the things that I always think about is, you know, some dumb article I read at some point that said people stay at jobs because they think their work is meaningful and because they like their colleagues and they leave jobs because they hate their boss. Oh, that's interesting. And so I think about that a lot as like the boss people would hate that would make them leave their job and like how to not create those conditions like that's a bare minimum hopefully i'm doing better than that but so how do you not be the boss that people hate because sometimes you can't help it right sometimes i mean sometimes you have to make a tough decision sure but at the very least i think you can try to communicate about why the decision that people didn't like was made i think you know you don't hate your boss because they did something you don't like you hate your boss because you think they're treating you badly for reasons that are opaque to you at least that's why I've hated bosses in the past is like, why, why would you be like this? It doesn't make sense. So you said that people kind of come into journalism thinking that they're going to be one thing. They're going to be this writer. So when you came in, did you both think that you were going to be identified as like a writer of the grand 5,000 word things looking back now as the editor in chief, what do you identify yourself as now? Yeah, I, I definitely don't identify as a writer. I don't think I ever really did. I think it's something that I I did well and did successfully that was a part of my career. But, and this is a little bit of splitting hairs, I strongly identify as a libertarian journalist, which is, on the one hand, a very small category. There are not that many of us, maybe a few dozen. It's also 
a broad term, right? Like you can, you can encompass this conversation, every podcast you've ever been on. Right. What it includes is all of the traditional functions you would think of as being journalism, but also like sometimes I go on TV and just like shout about whether CEOs get paid too much. And sometimes I talk to podcasts about my career and it's, it's a, it's a bigger category. It's a little more capacious. It gives more space for like growth and change, but there are many people who come in at the get go saying, writing words and the art of writing words and also the public service of writing words is the thing that's important to me. And I get, I think I've just always had a little bit more of a holistic view, but I really need those people to make what I do work. Like there has to be this like base to the pyramid of people who just have to write those words every day. And these are people who sometimes write the journalism words in the morning and write their novel in the afternoon and then play Dungeons and Dragons for fun, which is also basically just telling stories. And then, you know, there, there's a real, you know, there's some people who are just everything they do is in the service of storytelling. And in some way that's true for me too, but it's just a broader understanding. But you, you facilitate the storytelling in a different way, right? So, you know, that storytelling doesn't happen without somebody in your role kind of giving giving a platform to those voices and whether or not like, I think there's something really, really important about organizations like yours, whether or not you agree with your philosophy or rather an organization's philosophy. I think it's really important for organizations like Reason to exist because they are independent and have the capacity for that independent voice and thought so that those people who have to do the writing and are libertarian have a place to do it as opposed to getting sucked up into kind of like the overarching corporate journalist world. And that's includes, you know, what's happening with local TV stations and local newspapers and these things that are being conglomerized. Yeah. And I, you know, this is the Alexandria Gazette where I've had my very beginning actually became part of a network of local papers. And I think was eventually kind of beamed up to the mothership. I don't know all the details, but I think lost a lot of its texture and character in that process. And, you know, Reason Magazine is structured as a nonprofit. We're independent, and uh, we have like a lot of a lot of donors that just support us because they like what we do. And that's a very different position to be in than a lot of my fellow journalists, which I'm very very appreciative of. And I think the fact that many journalists feel like they can't identify as the things they believe, they can only identify as the thing that they do, puts them in a really tight spot. I'm a journalist. I'm the voice of God. I'm Walter Cronkite. You know, this is all the news that's fit to print. That's a hard job and one that I think is actually ultimately doomed to failure. To me, saying, you know, right on our sleeve, right on the cover, free minds and free markets. That's where we're coming from. This is what you're getting here. And you don't have to buy all of it, but we want you to know what our deal is. And, you know, this is when I was, when I got my internship at Reason when I was 19 years old and the thing I was much more sure of was my politics and, and kind of my political philosophy. I was much less sure of what function I would perform, what job I would have. So it's sort of important to me to keep those words together. Do you also identify yourself as a libertarian? Yes, definitely. I mean, that is explicit in the Reason brand. It is deeply embedded in my beliefs. It shapes how I think about the world not, you know, and, and there's actually, there's a debate inside libertarianism about thick libertarian versus thin libertarianism. 
thin libertarianism is basically libertarianism tells you how the state should behave, what what political actors should do. And thick libertarianism is like libertarianism is a vision for life. Uh, tells you how you should conduct yourself, not just in the political realm, but also in the kind of civic or personal realm. And I am quite torn on that question because I don't think this is actually something that Ayn Rand has embedded in her philosophy is like to be a good objectivist, not only do you have to believe in these philosophical tenets, you also have to like Rachmaninoff. You hmm. also have to only like, you know, spare modern silhouettes in architecture and clothing. Like, and that's ridiculous. Of course, that's ridiculous. Of course, your politics and your aesthetics do not have to be one and the same. At the same time, you know, reason has a vibe and a culture and we are not national review and we are not the nation. We are our own thing. And it's, you know, it's sex, drugs, and robots. It's, you know, sometimes the staff happy hour involves substances besides beer. Like it's, you know, it's an open culture that's relaxed. It's not prudish that respects people's personal individual choices, sort of a pluralist culture. And a lot of that is super important to me. And whether or not that's dictated by my politics, it certainly is congruent with them. And it's just a big part of who I am as a person and and who Dan is. I mean, my husband is also a libertarian. And I know that people exist in mixed political marriages, but I don't know how. It seems very exhausting, especially if you happen to live in Washington, D.C. And one thing that I think about a lot is 40-year-old Catherine was 100% foreseeable by 19-year-old Catherine. Like when I was 19, I had an internship at Reason. I had had met my husband and we were together and I could see the life that I have now. I, all the pieces were there. All the priors were there. And 19-year-old Catherine would be absolutely stoked at 40-year-old Catherine's life. Like just so excited. And sometimes I'm like, well, does that, represent a lack of personal growth like shouldn't 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 something else have happened between then and now but i ultimately don't really lay awake nights too much worrying about that because because 19 year old me and 40 year old me are the same the same gal you know and uh the reasons that i believed what i believed then are still largely true now they've taken on shade and nuance and color and the way the job looks is very different than i thought it would look because i was an idiot when i was 19 but it's the life I wanted. And I don't think a lot of people get to say I got exactly the life I wanted and it's awesome. That's pretty great. Catherine, this was the most fun and I'm so glad that we got to do this. And thank you so much. I want to talk for like three more hours because I have so many questions about all of these little pieces. And like, I feel like we didn't touch half of the breadcrumbs in your story, but I really, really cannot appreciate the time and the insight more. This was, this is awesome. I had a great time. Thanks for having me on, dude. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem-solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www. 
www.uildmo.com.